0: You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast.
1: I was surprised you walked in with Pepsi.
2: I hate that I walked in with Pepsi. I know you do. Uh, But on my way here, I stopped at the pharmacy and that's all they had
1: in that stupid? see that's there's no excuse for that pharmacy to only uh, have that's some because it's BS. not like a pharmacy has a, a you know distribution contract
2: no 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 it's like a walgreens yeah, like, a like big they just thing. have a cool
1: oh like it was, a, like, it was like a chain it, it was like a like, big chain yeah. like uh the the neighborhood pharmacy we go no
2: to. no no in the in the cooler they had it was empty okay so maybe they do have uh i a don't know they had something going on i don't know what it was
1: <laughs> but you i had to i had i was just so shocked because it's it's like one thing to get pepsi at the restaurant you're like i'm already here i'm a captive customer like i was gonna get a cola and you don't have coke and so now i'm getting pepsi fine but for you to, like, get a bottle, you're carrying that around.
2: Oh, I'm not happy about it. But I'm not one of those people where I'll all just turn heel and storm out and go, well, I'm not Well, man, you're not
1: getting my business. Yeah, yeah I'm just no, going to take
2: my business somewhere
1: else. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not. Why do we, somebody who talks like that is, like, unfairly maligned every, by our terrible Every time, every t- we, we malign <laughs> West
2: Texas people. Like it must be I don't know what that accent I, I is. I don't
1: know. Hey, I got West Texas family. Like we're yeah, not yeah. I got nothing against them. know.
2: none of them talk like and that. none of the them talk like yeah. that.
1: That's a grovelly old stubborn like grandpa. It's
2: my voice. Yeah.
1: We're going with it. <laughs> we'll we'll be I think one day we're gonna have we're gonna both like have, you know, um joint pain and and uh be sitting in a recliner talking to some snot nosed grandkids like in that voice, we're it's, gonna go, oh, it's no, the manifested it's, it. it.
2: It's the "Hey, you kids, get off my lawn" yeah. voice. But anyway, so I'm not so brand loyal that I'm just going to turn heel and leave if they don't have it because I've traveled so far down this emotional path that I'm like, oh, I, I'm going to get, I'm going to get a a Diet Coke, and you're already ready for it. And you're like, oh shit, they don't have all right, Pepsi. All right, you've, whatever.
1: You've I, binged. You've yeah, pre decided to because have there's cola. A, Right.
2: rather than coke uh that's exactly right right and and i don't i'm not gonna you know like I'm, I'm not gonna drink something else i just you know that's what i want
1: yeah i think that that shows to me how replaceable everything is
2: well it's it shows to me how sucked into this habit i am i can't quit drinking diet cola
1: well yeah no there was a time where you drank 12 diet cokes a day
2: i if i stopped i think coke stock would drop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I have a problem. <laughs> but think about that. Think about how, how much more you prefer Coke over Pepsi. Yeah.
2: I don't know. It, like it's, it's like, irrational. it's not it's a, irrational. it's
1: not a contest. Like you wildly prefer Coke over Pepsi. I do. And, and you get like mad about it, which is funny. And so I think that you're like a lot of people in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are probably plenty of other products and services that we might feel that way about right oh this is number one there's no number two like i'm taking this right but when when you are no longer provided the option of number one right we'll go to number two i'll just change and i think every business owner could learn from that and go you know what no matter how much my customers like me no matter how much my clients like me um i might be their clear number one right but if i ain't around Number 2 will work.
2: I, I might be a Ford guy, but if Ford stops making pickup trucks, I'll buy a Chevy. I don't care. You're right. That yeah. kind of that kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. So yeah,
1: it's I'm more loyal to the product than the brand. 100%, no matter how much I think I'm loyal to that brand. Right. Nobody's yeah. loyal to your brand. It's interesting. Yeah. We uh it's funny that you brought that in because today uh I talked with Jen Kleinens our guest about New Coke. Um I know you were uh, not able to make it because uh, mom had uh, her wisdom teeth surgery today. So uh, for everybody listening, uh, well wishes to mom, mom Smith and her uh, oral recovery. But today we talked with Jen Kleinhans for the second time on our podcast. She is uh, one of our favorite guests. She is a recognized authority in applied behavioral science, founder and managing director of marketing and product design firm, Choice Hacking. She helps global businesses ethically apply behavioral science and psychology principles. She hosts the Choice Hacking podcast, the author of Choice Hacking, How to Use Behavioral Science and Psychology to Create an Experience that Sings, which was recently named one of the best behavioral psychology books of all time by Book Authority. And she is the author of a book that came out this year, called How to Solve Impossible Problems, A Guide to the Thinking Tools of CEOs, Philosophers, Inventors, and Billionaires. I talked with Jen about reactants, the pain of payment, decisions made in a recession, the Gruen effect, the endowment effect, hyperbolic discounting and confirmation bias. We talk about so many decision-making frameworks. Jen might know more about mental frameworks around decision-making than anyone I know, so you're going to learn so much. There's something you can take away from this conversation to make your life better and make better decisions, defeat bad decision-making in your own life. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Jen.
0: Hello, Sanger. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I don't know why I feel this way. I don't know where you stand politically. It doesn't really matter. Uh-huh. Um, you give me Tim Pool vibes.
0: Oh, no. Is that good? <laughs> I, I, that I know. Good? <laughs>
1: it's, it's not good or bad. It's not. I mean, I guess it's more good <laughs> than bad. It really has nothing to do with it. Tim Pool. I couldn't explain it, and it doesn't make any sense at all. That's why I had to tell you. (laughs)
0: Oh my god! All right, well, I'll be honest. I haven't gotten that one before. That's that's a new one.
1: (laughs) I was I knew I was going to tell you that, and I was looking because I was like, did I see some picture of Jen on or a video or something with you in a beanie recently? Oh yeah, that's probably it. That was it. Yeah, that was it. You wore a beanie, and then you just now you just can't escape Tim Pool in my in my cerebral brain.
0: I just Googled a picture of him. And the first one that came up was him in a beanie and I was like, oh yeah. No, I just you know, it's so funny. I I got on TikTok and I've been taking TikTok more seriously. Obviously, yeah. when I came back, the first TikTok I put up went to like five million views. And nice. I had just I had no makeup on. I was gonna be, I thought I thought at maximum a hundred people are gonna see this and five point <laughs> two million people saw it. I was like, oh
1: my god. Oh hey, that's how it goes, right? You don't think uh, anyone's gonna pay attention yeah. and that's when everyone pays attention. When you go out there and you decide, oh, I'm gonna get a lot of views, I'm gonna put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, that's when nobody cares.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm like, ooh, this one's gonna go viral and like three people watch it.
1: It's like it's (laughs) like they can read it on you. They're like, uh, she was she was trying.
0: Yeah, yeah. What's funny, that's the thing with TikTok. Yeah, they they can smell when you've like overproduced it or you're wearing like too much makeup or you're too like slick and they don't like it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm not um I, I don't put anything on TikTok. Um I do watch it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there's something, you know how you can see the views and the likes on the right side Mm -hmm. of the screen, right? What I noticed is that every now and then, you know, you'll get on the like for you page, you'll get a suggestion for a video that has like zero likes, zero comments, nothing. And what I notice is that I media I always check like for social proof. I'm like, how many people yeah, yeah. like this? You know, like a few seconds in, once I'm deciding whether or not I like it or not, before mm-hmm. I just scroll on, I'm like, uh, I don't like this, and then I go look to see who's watched it, and that always happens. I'm like, I could smell it; like it just yeah. felt like something that wasn't good.
0: Yeah, even it's if weird, it, isn't even it? if it's
1: highly produced.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You it's it, nobody really wants to be the first one to like something. It's almost like, okay, we'll go back into the day. So, before I was in marketing, I was a classical musician and we used to take a string quartet out on the street in DC, like Arlington, and we play, you know, fancy classical music. And what we noticed was uh we didn't really start getting tips, you know, because you put the case out and you want people to throw money in it. Um mm. until we put money in there. You have to you have to put dollars and change in the actual case so that people think oh well somebody else liked it so it's okay for me to like it too otherwise Uh, you go hours and nobody will put any money in the case this is like when i was like 15 so but i learned that lesson early it's like you need social yeah it's
1: a weird it's a a weird thing i don't know i i mean makes sense right we don't want to be out on an island we want to know that the choices that we've made okay these are rational good choices that other people would make yeah Um,
0: absolutely that's cool so you're doing tiktok well, yeah, yeah. lately.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what what is different that you have to do, if anything, between creating Instagram content, creating YouTube content, and then now doing TikTok content?
0: Oh, what's different? I mean, it's interesting because I think it's a real art, like telling a story in 30 seconds or less. And I think for me, like specifically, I'm trying to kind of get across like really complex concepts. I'm trying to simplify them, but not... Too much. So to mm. me, that's really what I had to learn. Is like, okay, if I'm going to tell like a little story, I'm going to talk a little bit, little bit about some psychology. What's enough to get people interested, but not too much to turn them off. And where, if I want to have like a deeper explanation with lots of examples and things, where do I talk about that? Is that a blog post or YouTube? So it's almost like, it, you know, it's the difference between like an elevator pitch and a full presentation. And nobody Mm -hmm. wants to see the full presentation on TikTok. They want to see that like on YouTube or in a blog or in an email. And so once I kind of got that straight, I was like, oh, okay, this all is kind of falling, you know, it's coming together and making some sense. I am not like a TikTok master by any means, but I I think it's just that it's, you have to like pique people's curiosity. You have to give them like a little nugget, but you can't tell them the whole story, which can be frustrating for me.
1: It's I bet it is frustrating when you have to shift from the YouTube mindset where mm-hmm. you could put on, it's like, nobody cares how long it is on YouTube. Yeah. There, there's people that'll watch, you can get a one minute video to succeed and you can get an hour long video to succeed. Yeah. There's almost no rhyme or reason to it. On TikTok, I, I've seen a lot of, uh, like a lot of creators will post, um, you know, the multiple part. Um, yeah. videos. Right. And people get frustrated in the comments. They're like, Oh, come on, man, put it all in one part. Like that's so mm-hmm. annoying. Um, but I, I started to kind of read into that a little bit more and creators would respond and go, we have tried posting all in one part and y'all don't watch it. They don't watch it. <laughs> no. So, no. you know, sorry, yeah. <laughs> but we're going to have to do it this way.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause you know, that concept of friction, So this idea is like, I come up against a barrier, like, you know, you see this in uh, lots of different areas. And sometimes I think marketers or whoever it might be, they all think that like friction is bad. Oh, we have to, we need a frictionless experience, but actually a little bit of friction can sometimes really work in your favor with something like that. I mean, the friction comes from curiosity. They feel like a little psychological pain because the curiosity has not been like satisfied. And because they have to go to the next TikTok, it's like, oh, why would I do this? But then They've already gone to the next TikTok, so they're more likely to just sit there and watch it than they're more likely
1: to go to the next yeah, one. And they're exactly. more likely to go to the next one. I mean, yeah. I I get frustrated by the, by the multiple parts, but only if the next part isn't available to me. Yeah, right. Like I have to get to dig they, around and find it. Yeah, where the where the where the creators really mess up is they post one and they're like, check in tomorrow for part two. Man, yeah. screw you! I'm not <laughs> showing up tomorrow. I'm not following up on this. BS garbage content yeah. that, you know, that, you know, probably isn't even providing value to me. You know, it's just some story about what happened to you at Target last month. Yeah. <laughs> no, give me the exactly. story right now. Um, yeah. You know, and so I'll, I'll go to the profile and be like, okay, where's part two? Oh, it's not here. That's when we get mad. But when it's mm. available, it could be a hundred parts. And I'm like, yeah. if it's interesting, I keep going. And yeah. I think it's, I think it's like a, a similar concept to in sales you want to give someone the opportunity to say no. Right. Mm-hmm. I learned mm-hmm. that really early on in my career. Don't, don't check in with people and, and have them say yes. Oh, does this make sense? Does that sound good? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you want to go, you, 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 or you, you like this so far, check in and give them the opportunity to say no. Right. Chris Voss mm-hmm. talks about this, um, mm-hmm. in, in his book, never split the difference. Say, you know, any reason that we shouldn't do this? No. Well, psychologically now i I'm a little bit, I feel a little bit more comfortable because I know that -hmm. I can say no to Jen. Mm -hmm. Right. And so maybe there's something there if it's one, two, three, four, five parts. Well, I know at the end of this one part, which is only 20 seconds, I can say no, I can just Mm -hmm. move on. Mm -hmm. Jen's not asking me to stick around for 10 minutes. She's just giving me part one. And if I want part one, okay, that's fine. If yeah. I want part 27, <laughs> I keep scrolling.
0: I keep doing it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there is this principle, the psychological principle, something called reactance, which basically says, it, you know, it's different for different people like any principle, right? Some people have it really bad. Some And some cultures have it. I would say worse than other ones, um, and it's this idea basically: if you tell me to do something, I'm not going to do it because you told me to do it, not because it's not a good thing for me to do. It's just, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, you, you see it like in the '70s with the seatbelt laws or helmet laws, things like that. Everybody knows that wearing your seatbelt is good for you, right? You get into yeah. a car crash, it's unlikely, but if it happens, it's going to be good for you. But you know, there there'll be a certain percentage of people that say no, I don't want to do that. And, you know, it's, we don't have to go too far down, you know, the path of like the last couple of years. But if you look at, you know, sort of the way different cultures are, are they more individualistic or are they more collective? And in those more individualistic societies, like the United States, uh, people are more likely to have that bit of reactance because they feel like, you know, it's my decision. It's my choice. You can't just tell me what to do. So it's interesting. You're kind of saying that it's almost that. And then the idea of kind of continuously giving permission. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, well, I'm, I'm letting you continue. I, I'm given a choice and I'm letting you continue. So I'm sort of like, I'm almost like co-creating it. Right. I'm co-creating this decision that we're going down. I'm letting you continue. It's and like so checking then in I,
1: with the audience. Yeah. And you still interested? Yeah. It's like giving a speech on stage and and every <laughs> 45 seconds you, go, y'all want me to keep going? <laughs> <laughs> sure. y'all, y'all, y'all still <laughs> listening? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Keep going. Um, yeah, yeah, the seatbelt is an interesting thing. How people just reject that. Like, no, I know it's safer, but not going to do it. Um, I remember, uh, during the, like early on in the vaccine debate, um, Mm -hmm. people were kind of drawing analogies to the, the seatbelt laws and saying, uh, showing videos of people reacting to the seatbelt laws. And it was it was funny. It's a lot of the same arguments. I think yeah. you could find humor in it regardless of where you stood on the uh, vaccine debate. But people were, you know, well, what's next now? You know, they're gonna ban, <laughs> yeah. what's next? They're gonna make us wear helmets. <laughs> oh, and- yeah. <laughs> Later. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh it is is pretty funny. I wasn't around for that debate, but 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 I empathize with it. I probably would have said, No, now I now I don't want to. Oh, you yeah. know, you're telling I me never to. Never thought and about now, it before. <laughs> now I I hadn't thought about it. In fact, I was wearing my seatbelt, and now I don't want to wear my seatbelt. Oh, yeah. My grandfather, he's 78, 79, and uh, he still he still won't wear a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. And these new cars, they've got uh, for the past 20 years, new cars for the past probably 20 years. If you don't buckle your seatbelt, what mm-hmm. does it do? It dings at you, right? And this man will get in his car buckle the seatbelt behind him
0: oh my gosh <laughs> just so it
1: stops dinging wow and and my dad and i we'd give him a hard time we're like pop it's more work this yeah. is now more work for you <laughs> to you know get it all behind you yeah To you could just put it it's actually designed to go over you it's really easy yeah. process to put it in he won't do it
0: <laughs> well there you go reactants <laughs> yeah
1: um you have an amazing amount of content that you put out like on Instagram. I love following your Instagram because you, you tell these stories of these different companies making decisions all the time. And I'm like, Jesus, where did Jen even find this (laughs) info half the time? Um, but I, I saw something the other day on your page that, um, that I had heard about on the news and that's these car companies um, charging, what do you call it? Like subscription services just to keep the features of the car. What the heck is going on yeah. with that?
0: Yeah. So it, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle because BMW came out and basically said that they, and they're not the first ones to do this. So, you know, you can't like burn BMW too bad for doing this. Um And they they're basically heat, said, want it. I, I think deservedly so. To be honest with you, okay. that's my personal opinion. <laughs> okay. um, but basically, you know, you you buy a BMW and you are you are given an option. You're given an option to pay for the entire like heated seat package up front, or you pay a subscription. So the idea is like, okay, well, they're probably thinking you could pay two thousand dollars when you buy the car, or it's nine yeah. ninety nine a month, or whatever it is, or twelve ninety nine a month to keep the the feature of the heated seats. Now. I think there's, this is mistaken for a couple of reasons. I think number one, it, it, this is car companies trying to kind of keep up with each other. Because obviously Tesla very famously has, you know, you pay a subscription or you pay a fee to unlock like hyper mode and these different sort of like, oh, I can go faster in my Tesla. So I'm mm, going to pay X amount of money. Okay. Toyota got in trouble a couple of years ago because they did something similar to BMW with the push to start. So they're like, oh, you're going to okay. have to pay 9.99 dollars uh, a month now to keep push to start. Um, oh. it's interesting in that, um, you know, it's, it's, it is literally, if you look at the numbers, it's basically six in one hand, half a dozen in the other. Right. But what they're doing, I think is very mistakenly pulling up something called the pain of payment. So there's this idea that there is a psychological pain every time you have to pay for something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is why things like, you know, Netflix said it and forget it, like, Uh, you know, unlimited coffee. And I know Panera had this for a while where you pay like $9.99 a month and you get all the coffee because you didn't have to go in and pay for it every time. But basically there's research that says, um, you know, the difference between paying in cash and paying with a card is pretty significant. If I pay with cash, it is a psychological pain because I see the numbers kind of disappearing in front of me. And some of this research says that if you pay with a card, you can spend 5%, 10%, 20% more because you don't feel that psychological pain of payment. Um, I, I think where BMW is, is kind of mistaken here is they're pulling out a specific feature of the car and they're making you think about it, right? What I want as a luxury car owner is not to have to feel like I'm nickel and dimed. And interestingly, yeah. I'm, I'm writing an article about this now looking at the way they sell hypercars. So if you look at the way, you know, these $3 million cars are sold, they're all inclusive. They do not nickel and dime you. They basically say it's three million dollars for the car. Pick whatever you want. That's how much it is. And there's not like a laundry list of things they have to go through.
1: Oh, and you're fees. getting far more services. Yeah. Too, yeah. Right? Exactly. I'm sure they're coming out to your house and washing it and waxing it in your driveway for three million dollars. You know, they're doing they're doing they're stuff doing that you're not getting even yeah. talked about or thought about. It's a seventy-five or even a hundred thousand dollar car.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I think the interesting idea here is it's like, well, you know, what a luxury car buyers want. And obviously there's a big difference between someone who's pushing like a $3 million sure. McLaren or something yeah. versus somebody who's driving like an, even an $80,000 BMW, which is still a very expensive car in the big scheme it's of things. A great car, yeah. But, you know, the people who are buying that $80,000 car, they feel like they're buying a luxury experience. And they when you have a luxury experience, you don't want to feel like you're thinking about every little penny that's going here and there. It's why, you know, if you look at psychological pricing techniques. If you look at a company like Louis Vuitton, so expensive handbags, you'll notice that they, 99 times out of a hundred, price something with a zero on the end. It's never $1,600 and 99 cents because 99 denotes Mm -hmm. value. Like we have been trained to see 99 and think, oh, it's on sale. Oh, it's cheap. All of these luxury companies have a very good handle on how they should price things to make something feel luxurious right and and okay. a part of that is okay, you know so not feeling put, like you're paying it, for every little thing
1: if they put 99 cents on it that works at walmart target that works yeah. you know on <laughs> for $50 range items on amazon that's going to make me less likely to buy a rolex because i go oh that's that's what i do when i'm saving money i'm trying to blow right. money on this <laughs> on this burberry bag yeah totally okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting if you think about, so there is this principle of the, products basically sit on a spectrum, okay? So on one side of the spectrum is something called utilitarian products. So like detergent, toothpaste, like mm. a can of tomatoes, like whatever. Something utilitarian, it's filling a need, okay? On the other side of that spectrum are hedonic products, which are more like fun and they're treating myself. So that could be something like a luxury car, a watch, a bag, even a nice haircut, like something that, isn't necessarily like have to have it, but I kind of want to have it. And the way that you treat and sort of talk about and price those two different kinds of products is very different. And that can even be true like with a single company, right? Like you can have one yeah. company that's selling things on a, a variety of places in that spectrum. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, if you think about utilitarian is like McDonald's, when you go to McDonald's, you want to feel like you got a good deal. That's part of going to McDonald's. It's a value type of experience. But if you go to like Nobu, you don't you don't want to feel like there's a dollar menu at Nobu like it doesn't make any sense like well I'm I'm here for like a luxury experience and therefore I do not want to see any of the signals of value that I might be looking for in a different context.
1: Okay, is that man? That's fascinating because uh, obviously some people can't afford to even participate in that that psychological exercise, right? Mm-hmm. They can't they can't afford to let themselves go there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some people, they go to Nobu, eh, they're not going for the luxury experience. They're going to say, ah, I don't like the fact that I can't see these prices and <laughs> yeah. sniff it out. Um, but you're saying if you're, if you've kind of already chosen to be in that mindset of, hey, I'm here for a luxury experience, mm-hmm. um, then it's a takeaway. So are, are there companies that have tried to create a luxury experience by doing some of these tricks, but maybe they've missed? identified or they they don't actually have a luxury product or created a luxury experience
0: <laughs> um you know i can think of one off the top of my head which is mcdonald's and actually mcdonald's had um or, or might still have in some places um a line of burgers called the signature line so signature line was intended to compete with like the five guys the more you know and that's mm. not luxury is it but it's compared to mcdonald's it's a, nicer, it's a different yeah, experience nicer than it's the nicer yeah it's supposed to be something that's a little bit of an elevated Product and they they did struggle with that product for quite a while because at the end of the day like it was nice for McDonald's but it was still McDonald's um, yeah. and I think you know and you have to look at all of this stuff in the context of the economy and you know how people are thinking about money how they're feeling about money and like I'm not an economist but I think one of the interesting things about being in a recession is that a couple there's more than one indicator for when you're in a recession and one of the indicators yes. is does it feel like you're in a recession. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter necessarily if you are, but <clears throat> yeah. if you feel like you're about to be, or you feel like you're in one or, you know, your friend down the street and all your neighbors just lost their job, you're going to be like less likely to kind of want to go to one of these value places and maybe get something that well, feels like And that's splurge.
1: why, that's why, um, the, the government currently is trying so hard to convince us that we're not in a recession. And, yes. <laughs> and regardless, of, regardless of how you feel about this administration, regardless of whether you personally think we're in a recession or not, yeah, that's obviously where they're coming from. I had mm-hmm. dinner with a, an economist from um, NYU three years ago, and it was a table of me and some other uh, advisors we're sitting there talking about current investment environment. And this is obviously pre COVID recession. Everything's mm-hmm. going great. Right. 2019, like we're in the longest running bull market of all mm-hmm. time. And he goes, um, cause that was a, like late 2019 when everyone's starting to say, Oh, 2020 is going to be a recession. 2020 is going to be mm-hmm. a recession. And, and all those experts were right for the, all the wrong reasons. Um, he said to me, his name was Ed. He goes, what's a recession. He asked the table a couple, you know, Mm-hmm. pauses later and because it was almost too easy of a question somebody goes two consecutive quarters of negative mm-hmm. gdp growth like and we were all kind of like what's the catch he wouldn't be asking this question
0: yeah he's a professor he's asking his rhetorical yeah, question like,
1: that's such an easy answer that's yeah. that it means it's not right mm-hmm. and he go he waits doesn't acknowledge and then finally he goes it's whatever the government says it is mm-hmm and I had never forgotten that. And then now it's like, that's all I can think about. And he goes, what if I told you we'd never be in a recession again? I go, what? And he, <laughs> he took this position three years ago. I mean, clairvoyant. He goes, the government from now on will never, ever admit we're in a recession. We will always, it will always be backward looking. Because they know that if they say we're in a recession, that Consumers will behave differently because that's yeah. that's what a recession is, is once we all say we're in one. Yeah. Um, and so a client asked me a couple of weeks ago, so are we really in a recession? You know, I'm hearing the the the, the Republicans are saying we're in one. The Democrats are saying we're not in one. And I said they're both right. That's the mm-hmm. crazy part of it is that, yeah, technically um, there is not a technical definition of a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of just is based on whatever the expert economists say, (laughs) whether Mm -hmm. we're in one or not, based on a ton (laughs) of different factors. And also the Republicans are correct because there's a colloquial definition that Mm -hmm. is two negative consecutive quarters. And that was the definition that I learned. I remember hanging out with my dad in 2008 going, so what's all this talk about a recession? What does (laughs) that mean? And he says, oh, it's two two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Oh, okay, and that's the the only definition I have ever heard anyone ever say. So they're both they're both right, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's causing so much of a problem because you've got one group of people saying we're not in one, this isn't, and self interestedly saying we're not in one, and another group saying well, we're in one. And by virtue of us saying we're in one, that kind of proves Definitely our point. Are. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of proves yeah. our point. And so, you know, yeah, I think the fact that it's a debate almost guarantees that we are in a recession.
0: Yeah. Cause no one would be thinking, oh, we might be in one if we weren't in one. I mean, interestingly, like, obviously for those people who didn't listen to the first one, so I live in the UK and we have a recession. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> Bank of England came out and said, uh, no, no, guys, it's it's definitely happening. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. And then to see like the debate in the U.S. where it's like, are we, aren't we? But, you know, it, it's interesting because, yeah, the U.S. is kind of going through like a mix of uh, different things, like confusing things, like jobs are good and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, I, I didn't mean to take us necessarily down a recession rat hole. But, um, yeah, I think it just really pulls to the fore that like, a lot of the way that we behave is very much dictated by a context and B psychology. Like, how are we thinking about something? How are we talking about something? How is something presented to us? Um, And, you know, like most things, most people don't either realize kind of what's, you know, realize what's going around, going on around them. So like a fish asking how's the water and somebody says, what's water, that kind of issue. Um, And I think, you know, it's, it's this other question of, well, you know if if context is such a a big decider on you know what I'm choosing to do or not to do, then how do I know what I'm being influenced? right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. where it's how do how do I look for the signs that you know somebody might be manipulating me? Um, which I think is a really interesting question because like on my YouTube channel and on on my you know po- or my blog and podcast and things, um, I do sort of unpack these ideas of you know, there's these companies out there that are using psychological principles. Some of them know what they're doing and some of them don't. Some of them just know something is working and they don't necessarily know why, or, you know, it's not like a specific psychological, um, like strategy that they have. Um, but with something like the Gruen effect. So I think the Gruen effect is a really interesting one where it's basically, so the story goes, there was a, um, Austrian architect named Victor Gruen. He came to the mm-hmm. US in the fifties and, you know, he came from Austria where they had like a lot of public squares and like really nice communal spaces. Um, Cause obviously in Europe, you know, it wasn't built around the car and he came to suburban, the suburban post-war US and looked around at a place that was designed for people who had cars. And he was like, there's no social spaces for people. So I want to create one of those. Cause I'm an architect and that's my job. So he creates what eventually becomes the mall. Interestingly, the people that uh, that hired him to create the first what we would call a mall <laughs> are the Dayton Corporation, which become Target. So Target yeah. <laughs> does use the Gruen effect, whether they know it or not. And basically what the Gruen effect is, is, you know, Gruen builds this amazing mall and he thinks, this is it. Uh, you know, everyone's going to have this great social experience and, you know, the car, we've overcome it. But actually what he found is he would observe people walking into the mall with all these like sights and smells and sounds. It's very overwhelming. And he noticed that when people would come in, they would be overwhelmed by all the stimulus and they would start spending more money than they had originally planned. They would buy mm. things that weren't on the list and they were really just like enjoying the experience, but the, the mall was designed in such a way that it kind of changed their mood, it changed their mindset and it put them more into a like enjoying the moment, not thinking about the consequences, buying yeah. really more stuff than I should. And you can see sort of the, the legacy of the Gruen effect in places like target or you know other retailers where you walk in and there's a t- there's a coffee shop or there's like a little you know like in target it's bull-size playground but these little like budget spots where you can get something for a dollar it's like oh i just walked in already i'm distracted already i'm off the list yeah now are they sitting down and saying like oh my god we need to manipulate customers so that they completely forgot what was on their list as soon as they come in no they're probably going like oh it'd be nice for people to have coffee and the budget stuff should probably sit up here so everybody can see it when they walk in but mm. the actual effect is they do sell more, probably because of this Gruen effect, which interestingly Victor Gruen tried to then distance himself from for the rest of his career. You know they named it the Gruen effect and he was like, "Whoa, um oh, really,
1: why did he why did he not want to be a part of it?
0: He felt like it was manipulative, but like uh, a lot of you know retailers, he didn't set out to be manipulating people. He just thought yeah. this is you know this is too much i'm I'm changing. Uh, you know, people's moods and their mindsets too much when they come into the mall or a store or whatever it might be. So, I mean, that's one of those things where I I always tell people, I always try to be mindful of it myself because, you know, you you teach, but do you really know? (laughs) And it's like, if you're walking into a retail experience and your emotions change, like you get an emotional response. Like I get an emotional response when I walk into Sephora. I haven't, there's no Sephora's in the UK. I went to Barcelona with a client, Uh, to do a client workshop a couple of months ago, I walked into a Sephora because they lost my luggage, BA. That's a whole nother story. I walked into the Sephora and I literally was like, oh, I feel relaxed. I feel like there's air conditioning in here and everything smells nice and it looks so good. And I was just supposed to be like getting the budget makeup to replace all the stuff that BA had lost. Like they lost everybody's luggage for the last like three months. And (laughs) instead I ended up spending mm, 300 euro on makeup that I probably didn't need. I definitely didn't need it. Like, definitely,
1: who, didn't. Who, no, one hundred percent didn't need.
0: It. <laughs> no, but I was like, oh, but you know, I like this blush; it's a little bit better. And you know, I, there's no Sephora's where I am, and I just mm. yeah. And I start like making excuses. You got to justify
1: it. Yeah, there's it's so easy. Yeah. To, oh well, I can. paint <laughs> Here's why, and and you know what? Honestly, yeah. like I worked really hard <laughs> this week. Yeah, and there's so I'm really many stressed things we can out. do to justify it. Yeah, they
0: lost my luggage. I don't have any clothes. This is terrible. Yes, you know? but, yes. But at the end oh, of the day, it's story. because, yeah, they've, they've got a, a retail experience that it does trigger like an emotional response and not in everybody. I mean, you probably would walk into a Sephora and be like, this I, I got to go. No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. none of this is working on me, but you no know, for other people me like me, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is, this is really like, you know, taking over my, my mind. But I think that's always the thing to look out for. It's like, you know, on one hand, when you, when you shop, when you have like a retail experience, even online even digital experiences, you want to kind of feel something.
1: You know, a lot of times people
0: shop because they're bored. They want to try something new and do something different.
1: I will consciously pay more Mm -hmm. to, um, to have a good experience while I'm shopping. I don't like grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. I do not like it. Um, I rarely, like, I rarely feel as if I have the time for it. You know, I work Mm -hmm. a lot. The last thing I want to do is go, you know, walk around, uh, you know, a dull, sterile, like all white Walmart that's yeah. got people running around and kids screaming and
0: it's got that Walmart smell
1: looking for Walmart and has a and yeah. Walmart smell. Yeah. It's <laughs> not I bad. Know, it just I,
0: smells like Walmart.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's like, man, I got a few free moments and I've unfortunately got to spend it doing a chore. The last thing I want to do is have that chore be stressful. So I go to central market mm-hmm. and central market. It's kind of, um, a almost like a Whole Foods type thing owned by H E B. I don't know if they exist outside of Texas. Um,
0: I don't even know if H E B exists outside of Texas. Actually,
1: H E B might not even exist outside of Texas. But I've never seen it, it's, anywhere else. <laughs> it. The best way I could describe it, if you've never been to a Central Market, is imagine take Whole Foods approach to healthy unique options you know Mm -hmm. not something you're going to find at a walmart or a target very high quality produce very high quality fresh meats and you know Mm -hmm. uh, organic pasture raised eggs and all that really great stuff and take it up a notch from there and a wonderful like layout wonderful experience um the the they focus way more than whole foods in my opinion on creating an excellent Experience in the store. Uh, The Whole Foods CEO even because they started in Austin, even credited Central Market. Said they were our biggest competitor early Mm -hmm. on. Might not be anymore because Whole Foods is you know more national. But having said that, oh my gosh, I go in there and it's just the way that they have the lighting and the way that like they put all the fruit and it just makes Mm -hmm. the the area where the fruit is is so colorful and ah just feels so full of life. I'm like (laughs) I could go in there just to get an apple and a banana. And I'm probably paying triple what I would at Walmart and I do not care. I'm like, so (laughs) I'm just thankful. I'm like, at least I get to be at central market.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really like the experience makes such a difference. And I think, I mean, that's something you see with on the other side of the spectrum someplace like Aldi. So like Aldi is almost, I mean, you know, deliberately is on the other scale of that, right? Like they, they're very simple. It's all store brand. But that's because their whole reason to be is for people to save money. So they've set up the yeah. experience in such a way that, like, they cut all the corners. But if you think about something like a Whole Foods or even, you know, like a Trader Joe's, right? Like, it's they want it to be a pleasant experience because they know if it's pleasant, you will spend more time there. You'll put more things in the basket. And yeah. really, once you get something in the basket, like, it's all over because then an endowment yes. effect kicks in and you start to sort of like imagine, oh, yes. I really need these, whatever, you know, like fancy almond milk. I need the fancy almond milk.
1: Endowment effect.
0: (laughs) Yes. The endowment effect basically says that like owning something or the intention to own something makes us less willing to give it up. So a good example, like Ikea effect is a type of endowment effect. So, you know, I co-create something. I, I put this furniture together from Ikea and... You know, in the experiment, they put it up in auction, and the people that had built the furniture, rather than just being given the fully assembled furniture, they they wanted it to go for more. They bid more for it. They felt Mm -hmm. like it was worth more. Another example might be, um, you know, you if you think about if you've ever lived in a house for a couple years, five years, six years, and then it's time to sell the house. Um, You know, real estate agents come up against this all the time. You think, oh, this house must be worth five hundred thousand dollars. And they go, well, no, 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 like slow down. It's just closer to like 425. And you think, well, n- well, no, it can't be because I've lived here and I'm bonded with this. My kids grew up here. You know, <laughs> you have an emotional attachment to it. You don't yeah. want to give it up. You feel like it's worth more than it is. So endowment effect, like there's a lot of different ways it can happen. Um, even in the digital sphere, they find that when you shop on an iPad or a phone and you swipe a product, you're touching a product. So, you know, it's I'm not even like grabbing it and putting it in the cart. That makes me bonded to it. That makes it more likely that I'm actually going to buy something because I'm interacting with it, I'm touching it. Even things like haptic imagery. So haptic imagery, basically, if you have, you know, like, this is a little remote control for my lights, but like, you know, you see something with like a phone in someone's hand in an ad. That's haptic imagery. That makes you bond to it a little bit more than if they just showed the phone. Because you see someone touching it. You see someone like owning it.
1: Okay, you can kind of put yourself in that yeah in that uh you can kind of uh, associate how this product relates to you and go oh i can imagine myself holding that okay
0: exactly well subconsciously this is kind of happening sure and yeah
1: yeah you're not a lot you're not thinking no you're not thinking it to it yeah. um
0: but you know the same thing would happen <laughs> what if a nice family
1: it. enjoying this uh you know yeah. their freshly clean tied uh laundry detergent yeah no well, yeah. One, yeah no one's thinking that out loud
0: yeah no no um i think the other thing to think about too is like putting things in a cart um so ikea i talk about this a little bit how you know ikea basically has one floor plan and they've got some like urban ikeas that are a little bit smaller but um essentially you go out to this place you drive out into like you know wherever it is outside of the the city where you live in the suburbs someplace it's a huge box that has a one-way system has a track system right you come in and you walk, 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 you go up stairs and you walk, 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 walk some more. And then you go up. The- and before you know it, like you just have spent so much time in there. And because it's so big, you know, I see a lamp, and I think, oh, that's a really cute lamp. I don't know how mm-hmm. I feel about that lamp. I kind of need to think about it. I Well, IKEA is huge. And I think it's something like, it's like three football fields to walk or something. It's it, crazy. Um, so you say, oh, well, I'll put it in the cart just for a minute. I'll just think about it. Mm. If you notice, like in the grocery store, you'll see places where people have taken some out of their cart and just stick it up on a shelf, Walmart, like wherever it might be. You don't really see that as much in Ikea because <laughs> no one is going to go back and put it away. And they have it in yeah. the cart for so long. You know, Some of the research has said that you know people have started to, um, yeah, some of the research has done with things like concert tickets or basket, like UNC basketball tickets, things like that but this idea that you're creating pre-memories like, Oh, that lamp is going to look really nice in my office. Mm, I'm going to put it next to this thing. Okay. And, and then, yeah, you, you know, you kind of, you can't help but
1: envision to it. it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Oh, that makes so much sense. I, yeah. I don't think it was you. Maybe it was you. Um, somebody shared with me on the podcast that you get when you're online shopping, you get all of the same endorphins when you put an item in the cart, as you do, and you actually purchase it. So mm-hmm. if you put it in the cart and then just clear it out of the cart, you're like you're in the same place emotionally. I think that motivated. was me
0: because I okay. do
1: that. All right. okay. <laughs> it might not have okay. been
0: me, but I do it.
1: <laughs> well, then you're getting the you're getting the credit because I I I, right. I do that now, right? Uh, and so my rule is like I can't use the buy now button. Yeah. Um. I can't use the buy now button. I I'll put something in the cart and then I'll just forget about it. Mm-hmm. And the amount of stuff that I haven't bought is through the roof. I mean, the yeah. amount of times that I, I go, yeah. I, I have, I can't discipline at at Ikea. I'm just like everyone else at central market. I'm just like everyone else. I'm going to, I'm just going to fall for all the traps. I'm going to buy the stuff. <laughs> and that's why I hate going. So online shopping for whatever reason, I don't know why I can, I have, you know, at least by my standards successfully avoid overspending. And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say, you know what? I don't need that. I'll put it in the cart mm. I, or I'll, I'll, I'm not going to save my card info. <laughs> into, yeah. Would you like to I save your did. card info for easier never. purchases in the future? No. <laughs> no, no, that sounds horrible. I don't yeah. trust future me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing that.
0: Exactly. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like putting in, you know, we talked about friction earlier. The more friction you can put into a process, like don't have Google save your or Apple um, save your card numbers. And take yeah. your cart your card and put it like up the stairs. So now it's like, yeah. Oh, I'm sitting on my computer and I think this is really cute. And oh, I'm going to put it in the cart. Oh no, I have to go get my card. Eh, forget it. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, these little yeah. moments oh, of friction. That,
1: that yeah. alone, I it just saves me all the time. Yeah, so definitely. Oh, my wallet's over there. <laughs> <I'll> do that <laughs> later. I'll do that yeah. later. Yeah. Like I'm ever going to sit around and think, Oh, on the list of things I got to do is go buy that. Uh, running shirt that I saw on Amazon mm-hmm. or whatever it was. No, I'm good. Yeah. I'm safe now. I'm out of the, I'm out of the weeds. I'm out of the <laughs> clutches of Amazon and I'm, they're not getting any more money out of me.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, that buy it now and obviously prime are two of the things that Amazon have done that have really helped them grow. Cause if you'll remember, I mean that one click ordering, like, I don't know if they were the very first to do it, but they were the first to do it on scale. Right. So, yeah. you know, you had this whole, you know, huge like selection that you could just say, Oh, I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. now." Um, there's a really good comedian. It's
1: like magic. It just, you know, they do same day delivery now. Oh yeah, Yeah. I didn't, I learned that like a couple of weeks ago I I needed some (laughs) laundry detergent or something. It was there that evening. Yeah. What in the, that's sorcery. That almost (laughs) shouldn't be. I, I almost don't, it's almost too good for me to like it. Like, i don't, yeah. I don't know how I feel about the fact that I can just push a button and the things I need just show up. And I didn't, yeah. I don't feel any sort of pain for paying for it. Um,
0: it's just there it, magically.
1: Yeah. Like, I think we need our lives to be a little bit more difficult than that.
0: I mean, this is where it comes into, you know, like, oh, I want to get a little control over how I spend, you know, how how I feel like these. Um, principles or maybe have an effect on me. And I think that's really it is making things more inconvenient for yourself. Yeah. Because on one hand, the the convenience is great, but the problem is with that much convenience is it lets your impulses rule. So yeah, if you ever you know the um...
1: blush on the buy now, button oh, yeah. every, yeah. every, uh, every Sunday <laughs> night.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and you know, it's like the, there's a parable sort of, or like a metaphor around the, you know, the way that our, our minds work. So there's basically two, two parts I mean, this is just a framework, so it's not literally yeah. true. But there's the rational side of our minds and the way we think, and there's the emotional side, and there's this metaphor that basically says um, it's like a rider and an elephant. Okay, so the elephant is our emotions, the emotional side of our minds, and the rational side is the rider. And the rider can, you know, it's under an illusion of control. They're like, "Ooh, go left," and the giant elephant goes left. But if the elephant sees something it wants, that rider's not going to stop it. Like, it's no stopping mm-hmm. it. It's an elephant. It's huge, and you're just yeah. a tiny little rider. So this is the thing. It's like once your emotions start to come into play, you know, if you have the ability, you know, to um it, be buying whatever is sort of, you know, capturing your attention and your emotions at that moment, your emotions are going to go like, "Yeah, let's go over there. Ooh, that's great. Sure, mm, buy it now. Yeah. Why not? You know, it's I think it's cute and it's on sale. Okay, I'll do it." Um whereas your rational mind might be saying things like, uh, we need to, you know, be investing or paying the power (laughs) bill or whatever it might be, you know? And, and we all have those tendencies. I mean, it's not, it's not exclusive to any like, you know, education level or where you grew up or anything
1: about it. I mean, that's, I, I, I think it's, it's good to talk about how we, we all fall for these things. We Mm -hmm. all have, we all have made decisions purely based on our emotions that we wish we didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. Some with, not so big consequences, some with really big consequences. Um, but I mean, even the most disciplined, um, put together person deals with these very human issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between the people who seem to have it together and the people who don't are how aware they are of that mm-hmm. elephant. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's just knowing the elephant, seeing the elephant, looking at the elephant, going, Yep, that's a That's a big Mm -hmm. elephant and I am going to admit that I cannot control that. So Mm -hmm. what can I do ahead of time before that elephant gets pissed off or gets really excited or really hungry or Mm -hmm. whatever it is? Mm -hmm. What can I do to keep that elephant chilled out?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it it kind of reminds me like the way that you're talking about it, you know, there's this principle called hyperbolic discounting, (laughs) which basically says like we, we value things that we do now over things that we, would get a get a benefit from later. So the example I always use is if you've ever made a plan to go running early in the morning, right? Mm. It's like eight o'clock at night. You're like, yes, I'm going to get up at 5am and I'm going to run and it's going to be great. Or I'm going to go to the gym. And then the alarm goes off at like 430 and you're like, not a chance. No way. Yeah. I'm going back to bed because your emotions kind of take over because yeah. to you, it's not a choice between like being fit and You know, going back to sleep—it's a choice between just like that thing right in front of you. It's being uncomfortable or being comfortable, and you're not thinking about the long-term consequences of, you know, hitting the alarm every single morning. You're just thinking, Mm -hmm. oh well, what's right in front of me is warm bed or cold outside, and running and feeling terrible,
1: Um, sweating. (laughs) Or you know, like pick your poison, like
0: whatever it might be. Oh yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things, or one of the good situations where like mental rehearsal comes in really handy. Um, so for something like hyperbolic discounting, a lot of times, you know, because you're in like a weakened emotional state early in the morning, Mm -hmm. uh, just a small little bump in the road, a small piece of friction can really derail everything. Oh, I can't find my shoes. I forget it's five o'clock in the morning. I'm going back to bed. Um, but if you do mental rehearsal and you say like, okay, well, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I know I'm not going to feel like doing this, you know, what's one way I can kind of already be invested in doing it. So like for example, if I have to work out, you know, early in the morning, I sleep in my gym clothes because it's yeah. like one less thing I have to do. Yes. It's one less hurdle. You know, you charge up your headphones the night before, like you create a plan. And if you go through the mental rehearsal of here's all the things I have to do, here's where the yeah. little frustrations are that keep me from prioritizing long-term benefits.
1: Remove that makes it a little bit easier reason, to get out the door. Yeah, remove any of the reasons that sleepy, grumpy me can yeah. talk myself out of doing this. Well, yeah. A watch is already on my wrist and fully charged. Yeah. My, my <laughs> shoes are right by the door at the edge of my bed. My gym mm-hmm. clothes are already on. I got no reason to not go other than I want to stay in this warm bed. And then you're kind yeah. of silly. You know, if you yeah. sleep in, in your gym clothes, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're like, like, I'm already what halfway are, there. What have I done this for? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: I Whenever I was uh training for an Ironman, um, I would, I, I had to do that. I mean, yeah. I, I, I couldn't skip my morning workout because I also had an afternoon workout. Mm, So it was like, man, I got to do it. Can't do it later. I never once wanted to do it. I Mm -hmm. never once woke up every morning and I thought eventually like, okay, I'm going to eventually get used to this and I'll learn to like it. Mm. Hell no. That was awful every time. (laughs) It was how many things can I do to make this easier for me? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to make the process of waking up uncomfortable Mm -hmm. already, like or the process of staying in bed uncomfortable. I have a uh, like a a alarm clock that's super loud that's on the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. the light on my other alarm clock automatically turns on. So now my room is bright and blaring (laughs) and I have to get up out of bed to turn those off. Am I going to get back in? Oh, well, I've already got my gym clothes on. Oh, I had to step over my running shoes. (laughs) Yeah. All those things. Um, You were talking earlier, Jen, about um, the luxury pricing. Mm. And I want to go back to that for a second, because I I have a lot of friends who are business owners who, um, you know, want to move up market, so to speak with their product or service. And the challenge that they have is I may want to move up market, but my consumers, my existing clients, my existing customers may or may not view me in that mm. light right now. So if I go too fast, I could lose existing um, existing clients, existing customers. Um, and if I go too slow, if I base all of my decisions on what's going to make my current consumer base happy, then I'm never going to get there. Mm-hmm. So what what, like, what like, lessons can we learn from companies that have maybe done that really well or done that really poorly?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Because I mean, in a way, it's almost a brand strategy question as much as the psychology question, isn't it? It's how yeah. far, I, well, you know, you can use an economic term, right? Like how price elastic are my customers? Like how long are they going to stick around? If yeah. like, if I'm a McDonald's and all of a sudden I'm charging $12 for a hamburger, yeah. probably not, they're not that elastic with that, with that particular brand. You know, if you look at something like, um, the way that, you know, automakers structure things, they've got, um, you know, usually like a budget, a luxury. And then even within the luxury, they've got usually got like a super luxury tier. Um, yeah. you know, at some point you, you can't stretch customer perceptions beyond a certain point. Right. So, and it's much easier, yeah, really. McDonald's
1: is never, ever, ever going to be a luxury brand.
0: No, no. And and that's okay because, you know, that's yeah, their, that's, fine. that's what makes McDonald's yeah. McDonald's. And not, you know, it's it the same thing with, you know, something like Walmart, right? Like the Walmart customer is, you know, they might overlap a little bit with the Whole Foods customer, but you're never like going to be, you know, in parity. That's never going to be the same customer. And that's okay. You know, that's, you know, each each different area of the market has different, you know, people they need to serve. Um, you know, but if, for example, you know, Walmart decided to open, like, I don't know, we have Sam's club already, like, I don't know, Walton Mart or something where it's yeah. a little bit more fancy, you know, it's, it's little, a little bit more up in the, the next kind of tier of spending. That's much easier to believe than all of a sudden mm. Walmart is going to be selling
1: yeah.
0: $10,000 watches. Yeah. we
1: associate that brand. Yeah. That's a, yeah. that's a really good point. Um, I mean, yeah, what, I mean, what can small business owners do who, might not. Um, and I know this is a big question, right? The real answer is completely individualized. Um, we, a a lot of business owners, they're they're in this place where they know, Hey man, I've got to adapt. I've got to adapt. I can't stay exactly where I am, but maybe I don't have the, I don't have the bandwidth the resources to just go out and create a whole new brand, uh, a whole new Walmart. Right. Um, at the same time, I can't hire, uh, Qualtrics for $250,000 a year to figure out, uh, Mm -hmm. the elasticity of (laughs) my product demand. And, you know, a lot of us are, we're just guessing we're going, Mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, people are buying it right now. I think, I think (laughs) 30% price increase, uh, spend, you know, 50 grand on marketing you know, get a new logo, make it look a little bit nicer and sleeker. And, Mm -hmm. uh, ah, I think we're good. Mm -hmm. We're winging it.
0: I mean, everybody's winging it, yeah.
1: <laughs> like,
0: you know, the professor at NYU is winging it to a certain yeah. extent, like businesses build on assumptions, but I, this is what I would say is, I mean, if you, you know, look at the research or, you know, look at someone who's like digesting and translating the research, somebody who is what I do, um, and, you know, see what you can learn and experiment and know that, you know, it, it's, this is the thing, isn't it? It's really difficult to get people to change. Right, if they expect a certain thing from you, they're used to a certain experience. Unless they're getting much more value for like the same amount of money, it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to get them to do something else. Um, Yeah, and you know, I I think at the end of the day, it's it's like what you're saying. It's you know, you've got to, and I think a lot of marketers would say ask people. Um, I am a more of a behavioral marketer. And I think part of the problem with asking people, hey, would you buy this? I mean, I just posted yesterday about um, you know Colgate Toothpaste, decided to do a brand extension in the 80s because frozen food was just getting sold like hotcakes. Everybody wanted frozen food. So Colgate came out with beef lasagna. Colgate, mm. it's like Colgate beef lasagna. Now Colgate is a big company, Colgate Palmolive. You cannot tell me that they didn't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on research. And they talked to people and they said, would you buy this beef lasagna? And those people are probably like, yeah, sure, you know, like, I. It, but the problem is, you know, people will say one thing and do something else. That's a problem in marketing. That's a problem in life. It's a problem in relationships. No. This is the whole thing, you know, because people don't really know what's motivating them. They just know what they're going to respond to. Um, so I, I guess it's not really answering your question because you're right. I think it does depend on the product, the market, who they're going after, how much they're trying to like extend the brand. What the products might look like, you know, where do they have authority now, um, you know, how do customers trust them, all of that kind of stuff, um, but they really just need to think about the psychological side of that as well as things like brand architecture, right? So, if I walked into a store that I like, an Aldi, like you know, you trust mm-hmm. Aldi to have something that's really low price. When you're watching your budget, you walk into Aldi, and that's where you buy your staples. Now, if I walked into Aldi and all of a sudden they still have my staples, but they had like a row in the middle that had, I don't know, like steaks that cost $50. Yeah. How am I going to feel about all the budget stuff? It's going to affect the existing product perception too. Am I going to think all of a sudden, well, if they can afford to sell this, if they're selling $200 bottles of champagne in the middle of Aldi. Are they really giving me the best price they can on all of this cheaper stuff? So that's the other thing. It's like when you stretch in one direction, you kind of stretch away from the other direction too. So
1: mm.
0: it's thinking about the psychological implications. Another good example of a company trying to do to do something and not doing it very successfully, even though they talk to literally hundreds of thousands, I believe, of customers, they definitely spent millions of dollars on research, is New Coke. So if anyone, yes. I I don't really remember Newco because yes. I'm so young. But no, you know I was a, I was alive for I have,
1: I have heard this story, um, plenty of yes. times. My my dad would uh, use this as a wonderful lesson when I was younger about a life lesson. Uh, yeah, a life <laughs> yeah. lesson about how to how royally yeah. you can screw up totally. <laughs> by changing things.
0: Yeah. So if anyone watches Stranger Things, if you're not like they have new Coke and Stranger Things, right? So it's like a thing in yeah. the 80s. You basically had Coke. And they, I mean, there's a whole history of Coke, especially in post-war America. You know, they, they sent it out to like the troops and everything. It was really a part of like the American culture, Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And in I think the early 60s, you know, you had Pepsi and Pepsi was gaining all of this market share. And, you know, Coke basically went from being really dominant in the soda space, like owning basically all of it. To fast forward to the 80s, all of a sudden they're down, you know, to like small double digits in terms of market share. And Pepsi's just dominating everything. A big part of that really? was wait,
1: well, I didn't know that. So there oh, was yeah. a point in time where Pepsi was even outselling Coke.
0: Yeah, that that Coke was really getting beat up. Wow. And part of that was this marketing campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. So they would go okay, out. Yes, Pepsi I've would, heard
1: this. Yeah, they yeah. would go
0: out to like a mall or something and they would do a blind taste test. And people would say, okay, try this one. Now try this one. Which one do you like? And overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. people chose Pepsi. And this is the Pepsi paradox, actually. So this is an interesting sort of effect that if you do something like that, a blind taste test, people almost always pick Pepsi because it's sweeter. And people are like, yeah. oh, a little, and they have a little sip, you know, they're not drinking a whole can. They're like, oh, this is much better.
1: Yeah, yeah. If
0: you ask them, which one do you like, Coke or Pepsi, they're much more likely to say Coca-Cola
1: mm-hmm.
0: because of the brand and the implication. And there's a lot of other kind of like psychological And drinking a full
1: can of Coke is a different experience than taking a sip of Coke
0: exactly exactly so you know that's there's a little flaw there but regardless you know they're having the pepsi challenge and pepsi is basically saying oh we're for a new generation coke is for yeah. old people forget and it. coke
1: repli coke didn't believe them and they replicated the study and went damn it, it happened. they are they are yeah. beating us here
0: yes and so you know it was one of those things where if you ever if you did you see the last dance with michael jordan and he oh, says, yes, of course, say, we watched that I as that... a
1: family, by the way. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, there's those moments where something happens that, and he goes, and I took that personal. That's what Coke did. Yeah. yeah. T- they took that personal. <laughs> um, and they were like, oh man, you know, we've got to do something. So they launched a thing called Project Kansas and Project Kansas was a secret project to create a product that was sweeter, but that was based on the Coke recipe. So basically a sweeter version of Coke
1: and so, knock off Pepsi.
0: Uh, well, sort of, it was, you know, yep. Coke, like basically a sweeter version of Coke. So sure. it wasn't knockoff Pepsi necessarily, but, um, you know, the CEO at the time or the president at the time was, uh, Roberto, uh, Goizueta. I went to Goizueta business school in Atlanta. Oh, cool. after, Okay. Yes. Ro- Roberto, uh, Roberto Goizueta. There you go. And, um, he had done something similar actually. So he had yeah. run Coca-Cola's operations in the Bahamas and it worked. He, he tweaked the formula made it a little bit sweeter because they had, you know, some leverage with the bottlers and stuff and they could do that. Tweaked it, made it sweeter, and the the sales went way up. So he thought, oh, this is like no lose. I mean, we got to do this. We're losing market share. We're losing it to a sweeter product. But we're Coca Cola, so rather than just have like a new product, why don't we just replace Coke? We'll just make Coke sweeter. Uh, and and that was a mistake. Mm. Uh, basically, you know, you had protests and all sorts of things. Um, but they did do an extensive amount of market research. They did taste tests. They asked people. People really liked it. Now it's it's worth saying that when they did all of that research, there was a small group of people who got angry and they were like, are you going to replace Coke? You can't do that. But they ignored those people because of confirmation bias. Like yeah. they just had this charge from the the president, the CEO, I think for some good reasons. And it was a good product that people really liked, but yeah. you get it out into the world. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you're replacing this thing that is a part of my childhood. That's a part of Americana. Yeah, it's, it's different.
1: It's, it's like, you like can't, it. you can't, completely no matter how much you spend on studies and focus groups you can't truly replicate replicate and simulate the reality of what you're proposing ever no yeah. matter what it is right you whether it's got to do it political hey you know how does this one-liner sound in a speech okay you like that phrasing well now i'm actually watching you on tv saying that to a crowd of people doesn't sound as good you know mm-hmm. now that's in the reality that we live in i don't mm-hmm. like it as much um, yeah. new coke okay yeah it tastes good while we're here would would you like this to replace original Coke? Ah, ah, sure, you know. Yeah, but sure. I'm not, why not? I, but but I don't actually in that moment think about the time when I go to seven eleven and I want nothing more than a Coke because I've been sweating my butt off doing yard work mm-hmm. in a hundred degree Texas heat. And I go, and you don't have original Coke anymore? And now yeah. I'm mad. <laughs> New <laughs> that, Coke.
0: What is this? Yeah,
1: you can't you can't recreate in the minds of the consumer the reality of this change that you're talking about.
0: Right, and the other interesting thing about the new Coke story is you know they they were all kind of queued up for a big success and everything, and they had a press conference on what later became known as Black Tuesday, because it was the press conference didn't go very well because Pepsi heard before they announced it that this was happening, right? You know how like business, they just kind of hear things through the grapevine. And so they had the same you know instinct that they thought a lot of the customers would have of Coke. Like how dare you change this? This is terrible. Mm. So they prepped a bunch of the reporters with sto- with questions like, "How do you know this isn't going to bomb? How do you know people aren't going to hate this?" So Pepsi, uh-huh. you know, and like they there's like there's a whole history of this. Them. Oh yeah, it's oh, the cola that's wars. Great. They called it the cola wars yeah. for a reason. Okay. And they, they rec- <laughs> what's that's interesting to me that they recognize the psychological reaction that people are going to have, and they just sort of like amped it up a little bit. And pretty soon you've got protests and they're writing letters, to, you know, sending them to the headquarters in Atlanta. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you're just so in the weeds in your own business and, you know, you're making assumptions and you're kind of telling yourself a story that you start to believe is true. Then you start to ignore evidence that might, you know, lead you in a different direction. And before you know it, you've talked yourself into something that isn't necessarily like in the customer's best interest or in the case of New Coke most of the customers said, Oh yeah, I'd, I'd, really prefer this. But the psychological side of that change was never really considered or, or thought through.
1: Mm. Man, that's fascinating. And and they, how long was it before they reversed that?
0: Oh, it's a good question. Um, I know they, they basically w- took a It bath. was
1: really like in the grand scheme of things, really short, right? Yeah.
0: I think it was less than a year, but I, I wouldn't quote me on that. Um, I do know that, you know, like part of the part of the reason they came out with new Coke. Like obviously you've got all these confounding factors with, you know, Guisweta, who's a who's very, very smart guy. I mean, he really saved Coke. He made one big mistake, but he did a lot of really good things as well. You've got Guizueta and his experience, you've got all of this focus group data. Yeah. Um, and you've got the bottlers. The bottlers actually threatened to sue Coke. Cause if you're familiar with at all with the way like Pepsi and Coke are set up. You've got like yeah. the bottlers are basically separate from the brand and all uh, Yeah, stuff.
1: It's a totally different company and they have this yeah. contract with the bottlers to. It, it's a know, whole thing. <laughs> yeah. The bottlers, like they get to claim some sort of like um, brand image, like it damages and stuff. I, I, I'm not a lawyer, right? But I, <laughs> you know, Dublin, Dr. Pepper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So Dublin, Dr. Pepper, I don't know how popular it is outside of Texas, but we, we love Dr. Pepper's kind of like a religious symbol in Texas. Like you, <laughs> you have to, you have to kind of say that you like Dr. Pepper hmm. and it doesn't matter if Coke is your preferred beverage. No, I see. You have to say that Dr. Pepper is your favorite Yeah, to be, to be a true Texan. So I Dr. See. Pepper's my favorite. I will go order Coke for dinner. Um, oh, yeah. But they had Dublin Dr. Pepper, which was in a town of the town of Dublin, which is a tiny little town. Um in kind of north central texas um i don't know like a 100 people live there our producer morgan she like drives out there to get her organic eggs and milk um and there's really nothing there other than i guess some farms and this old bottling place that used mm. to um, make the dublin uh, dr pepper so they had for years they had made regular dr pepper and then dublin dr pepper i don't know how that started but i know that the dublin dr pepper was always always everyone's favorite if you had ever had Dublin dr pepper you're like oh my gosh this is so much better because they use real real sugar and -hmm. they just maybe they tweaked like a couple of other things but you can't get it anymore oh you cannot get it anymore and the reason is because the the distributor or the bottling company that does the other dr pepper the regular dr pepper that you're going to get at the grocery store sued dublin dr pepper so it wasn't, people were like mad at Dr. Pepper and they go, no, Dr. Pepper, what are you doing? You're so stupid. And then they find out, oh, you know, the Dublin distributor goes, oh, they're putting us out of business. They're telling us we can't sell it. And everyone Good. goes, oh, well, that must mean Dr. Pepper is, is saying that you can't do this anymore. No, it wasn't even Dr. Pepper. It was, the, it was the bottler. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what kind of sort of like bottle law issues there are going on <laughs> it's very, um, it's
0: really complicated yeah it's 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 hope it's its own world really um yeah but yeah like they it's have exactly the rights to
1: the product and they can yeah. say that we bottle i don't know
0: yes so they so they had something similar basically so like the the coke bottlers got wind of how well new coke was testing and they yeah. said we will we will sue coke corporate if you don't release new coke <laughs> That so wow. a, there was a lot of pressure coming from a lot of different places. Um, so I, that's why I think, you know, new Coke is probably one of the most misunderstood marketing disasters because the product was really good, but uh, the marketing and, uh, you know, they had some things stacked against them, obviously with, you know, the, the like loading up the reporters with loaded questions and things, but it was a great product. It really was. Some people are like oh, new Coke's terrible. No, new Coke's yeah. great. Um, they just really mishandled the way that customers were going to perceive a change to Classic Coke.
1: Well, it tells you how how bad they messed up because by the fact that you can't get it anymore. It's not like they said, oh, we'll bring original back. They said, we're killing new Coke. Yeah. And we're bringing original back.
0: It was a long time until they actually fully killed new Coke, though. So, like, Gwizweta famously drank new Coke until, like, the day he died.
1: Like, yeah,
0: he was like, I'm not giving it up. He, I think he said new Coke or no Coke. That was like his rallying cry, <laughs> new Coke or no Coke. And I don't know if you've ever worked in a big sort of like corporate corporate atmosphere, but you know, sometimes those things you gotta, you're like privately, you're like, I don't know about this new Coke thing, but you, you gotta go to work. But you gotta like, like rally no the troops.
1: Coke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't get egg on your face in front of 10,000 yeah. employees. Yeah. You
0: can't, you can't disagree with the boss. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. No, I never heard that in-depth kind of breakdown of new Coke. I just remember my dad telling me about it when I was little about how, you I know, know, and he kind of miscarried. Oh, it was terrible. No one liked it. But it wasn't, I guess it wasn't terrible.
0: No, no one liked the idea of it. A lot of people like the product of it, but you know, yeah. so the idea I guess is we gotta, what they're buying.
1: We've got to <laughs> factor in, you know, like, especially as small business owners, what is the idea we're selling? You know, um, obviously we don't have the same burden as, uh, Coca-Cola as, you know, having it be a nap, but our product, it, 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 some idea for, uh, it represents an idea of something for our clients. Um, Mm. it represents something Mm -hmm. and and I think we should know what that is. And, And maybe the best thing we can do is just ask, you know, what, Hey, what what, what, is, what does this really mean to you? What, what, what role do we play in our mm-hmm. lives? And the more we like talk to our clients, talk to our consumers, talk to our, our customers, um, I think we learn a lot. I know in my business, you know, I, I thought um, I was really communicating the luxury experience that we were trying to deliver on. And there were some things that we were doing as a business that our clients did not care about. They didn't care, even though it took a lot of work for us, and um, we thought it was a luxury experience. So, mm-hmm.
0: it's all yeah. about perception, isn't it? Well, hey, thanks <laughs> so
1: much for coming on, Jen. Um, this is a great conversation. You have a book out this year.
0: I do have a new book. Yes, my the OG yeah, book is Choice Hacking. Yeah, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, I have um, just a, a nice little um, guidebook to solving problems, actually. So it's all, ho- it's called how to solve impossible problems. And so it basically goes through things like first principles, thinking and lateral thinking and all these different ways that you can kind of, you know, use a tool or how tools have been used in the past to solve, you know, hairy challenges, impossible problems.
1: That's awesome. And where can people get it?
0: Uh, Amazon, all over Amazon, pretty much anywhere, you know, but book- with the buy now are button. sold. Yes, with the buy now button. You're allowed to impulse buy the book. That's yeah, it. Yeah,
1: that is all you can do. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, so tell tell everyone where they can find you. Instagram, you're at choice hacking.
0: Yep, at choice hacking on Instagram, uh choicehacking.com. You can find consulting. I work with a lot of companies of all sizes. So startup, scale-ups, fortune five hundreds. Um, and yeah, and we're, you know, we're across TikTok everywhere. Everywhere is choice hacking.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I Absolutely. know I learned a lot, and uh, we'll see you next time.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So you just got here? I I did r- right at the tail end of when I was talking to Jen. I heard um, you,
2: I heard you wrapping up, and that was that was the end of it.
1: Well, yeah, yeah I mean obviously I've got her on Zoom, so I can't. Uh-huh. I I was like, oh, should I like tell her that you're here? But then you know we were kind of done, so I just I didn't. I didn't well, say I was
2: I was so excited that we could get her back because I I felt like there was so much that we had to First talk. We, we didn't we didn't get to even touch on all the stuff. No, and does. and
1: that's how I felt today. I mean, like we we talk, and she is such an expert in her field that there's nothing we can talk about where Jen doesn't have a story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she's got a, a, a company that made a decision that went well or went poorly for every comment that you could make on choices and decisions. Yeah. Um, so it's so awesome to talk to her about this because we spend so much time thinking about decisions and, and talking about decisions. And we lean towards personal decision making right, versus of, like of corporate course. decision making. Of course. Um, and she focuses on the decisions that companies make and, and how those decisions may affect individuals I, I
2: think there are still basic concepts on how you think about a decision that are applicable oh, which, is, yeah. which is why i love having her on
1: decisions uh is the macro and then you know there's a lot of micro categories within well they are like you know decision group, group decisions yep. corporate
2: decisions personal decisions yeah. yeah
1: so we talked about i mean oh man we, we one of the biggest things that i think i got away from or got away with why was i gonna say that <laughs> took away got from i, I you know, know it's a combination of i knew what two. you're trying to say um we talked about the endowment effect you're f- familiar with that
2: oh you know it sounds like something i should be in the business, I in, that sounds like that's something I should know. But I'm going to say no, so I you can tell me. I was. Oh, worried. by the way, just so you're going to tell me, and then afterwards, I'm going to pretend like I, of course, knew. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm of I, course going to do that.
1: I knew you. Well. I yeah. know you well enough to know that that was happening, regardless. Yes. So, um, I was worried for a second that you were going to go a different direction with the endowment effect. Um, I'm not <laughs> going there. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't apply. <laughs> it
2: Does not apply.
1: <laughs> Runs in <into> the family. <laughs> okay. All right. So the endow- the endowment effect. Um, essentially, it is. And and obviously, you listen to the episode. Jen's going to do a better job of explaining it. But it's that we kind of bond with products a variety of different methods and once we bond with them even if we haven't purchased them we feel some sort of like ownership so a couple of different examples i'll share with you one is ikea so you go through ikea it's a long snake design you yeah. go in the entrance and then you go out it the ruin effect yes so we uh-huh. talked about that i know about that um and um, I actually, when she brought that Gruen effect, I was like, oh, I know the Gruen effect yeah. because of my dad. Um, so the endowment effect, you put it in the cart and it's like, well, it's mine now. Yes, okay, right? yes. So um, the the more precisely, I think the endowment effect is like when I can kind of like associate subconsciously myself directly with this product. So like when we are scrolling through online shopping we're touching products and we're like clicking on them well it's like oh it's like i've kind of like associated myself with it so me just like even clicking on a product i'm far more likely once you put it in the cart putting it in the cart you're way more likely Mm -hmm. another part of it is a there's she used an example of a phone i'll use like a coffee cup for example right right you have two coffee cups that are identical that are both on the website for you to purchase same price, same color, same design, same everything. One of them, it's marketed with just a picture of the cup and the other it's a picture of a hand holding the cup and the one with the hand holding the cup so much more likely to be purchased because I can associate that subconsciously oh that's like me holding the cup and they just kind of put these characteristics huh. on it. now jen might listen to this in the same way that we talked to jeremy about your golf tips right. and she might listen to this and go wow singer, that's not what i said you really misinterpreted you got this so wrong um does all right so
2: oh i wish i could ask her this all right so does the ethnicity of the hand have any correlation to should have asked that. oh uh, yeah we'll have to have her back up
1: Third Dang. time, so I'm not gonna. Or the care. gender not, of the hand, or uh, anything. <laughs> yeah. I have so many questions. That's <laughs> Man, yeah, I mean, it, it might. Well, um, I had
2: heard, I had heard a study similar to this, so it's the same kind of concept, where the professor kind of divided the room and randomly picked people to get some little prize, some little, you know, stupid trinket, keychain, or whatever, and then they had people value what what they would pay for that, right? Okay, how okay. much they would pay for this stupid keychain. And then what the peop- they asked the people what they would sell it for, right? And it's the same stupid keychain, right? And they didn't have it two oh, seconds yeah. ago. Okay. So the people that this. had the keychain always valued it like at $6, and the people who didn't have it and would buy it would only value it at like $4, mm. you know, something stupid like that consistently. So same kind of effect. But it's interesting that you talk about that that same effect correlates to a picture of a hand in a picture or putting it in the car- shopping cart or, you know, those types of things. It's That's really, I feel so manipulated as I travel through retail experiences now after talking with her.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like the Gruen effect. Yeah. Is, she said, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Gruen, um, what distances himself later in life from his name being associated with that effect because Why? he felt like it was manipulative. Oh. He was like, I don't want to be...
2: Yeah, like, this is, a, this is not want, a cool thing. I don't. don't
1: want people to think like I'm okay. Like with I made manipulate. it up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, he kind of made it up on accident and got right. associated with it. Um, but yeah, you know, if I had to give future singer advice, here's what I would give future singer advice and that what I hope I personally take away from my conversation with Jen Okay. Is that I I want to not be afraid to try things. Um, personally and with my business, because in all of these stories, you know, we had a tendency to share stories of mistakes because it's more fun to talk about the companies that did it wrong. Oh, of course, right. Yeah. We talked about like new code. You
2: hardly notice the ones that do it right. Yeah, you it, don't
1: know. It takes a lot it, of observation. It, it's like we'll
2: never catch the perfect crime. Yeah, right? It takes
1: a lot of observation to realize the ones that went yeah. really well. Right. right? Um, yeah, because they're so well that we don't notice it. Right. right. Uh, the, the, the stories that we have a, had a tendency to talk about today were the ones that were, were, were mistakes like new Coke. Um, you know, we talked about that just blunder BMW trend and nickel and dime. It's funny that
2: the the new Coke example becomes the classic example. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's the uh, original
1: bad decision. A, uh, so we had a tendency to talk about bad decisions, but, you know, I, I asked Jen, I'm like, well, what can, what can we do as business owners? If we're looking to make a change, you know, in our market group and we're trying to do this. And basically she was like, I mean, you know, you gotta wing it. Like we're all winging it. You know, she, she, what does she, mean she, by that? Oh, she means by just that, um, I asked her specifically, I don't want to get into the conversation cause you can listen to it. All right. What I, there's a point in the conversation where, you know, we're, we kind of realize, Hey, there's the best thing that you can do to learn and to grow is to make decisions and learn from those decisions. You're not going to have all the information. Not every single decision you're going to make is going to be perfect and great. Make decisions, move forward. You will learn. Sometimes you'll have great outcomes. Sometimes you won't. We talk about this epic failure of new Coke. Well, guess what? It probably saved, ultimately saved Coke. I mean, is Coke, is Coke who Coke is and what Coke is now without having learned the lessons of New Coke? I don't know. But we wouldn't look at Coca Cola as a failure. <laughs> right. Coca Cola is an extraordinary success. Right.
2: They're killing it, yeah. right?
1: So we point out New Coke. Oh, I don't, I don't want my business to have a New Coke moment,
2: right? right. But
1: geez, I'm gonna have some mistakes. And if I'm so afraid of having mistakes, I'm not going to ever change. I'm not going to ever adapt and I'm not ever going to learn. So I got to be willing and I got to know that I'm going to mess up. I'm going to roll something out that's going to get wildly rejected by my customers. I'm going to make a a choice with branding that's just going to fall flat. I'm going to do some things that don't work and that's fine and that's okay because at least I'm doing something and if I'm doing something and I'm making decisions, I'm learning. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of decidedly make another great decision and leave us a five-star review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith and this is decidedly.